May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. A few years ago I was at a wedding down south, way south, and uh, at the aftermatch function afterwards, I didn't know a lot of people there, but I was sitting with a group, some I knew vaguely and some I had only just met, and somehow the conversation got onto homosexuality and gay marriage, as it does at wedding receptions. And uh, in the course of that conversation, one of the people there said, so what do you do with that verse in Romans? You know the verse. It's the one that's quoted all the time when we have discussions about homosexuality. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their woman exchanged natural intercourse with up for unnatural. And in the same way also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. It's the passage that's quoted all the time when we have talks about homosexuality. Well, it was a good question, but well, I was at a wedding and I wanted to have some fun, and I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to answer that question. I vaguely knew, but I wasn't entirely sure, so I slid quietly sideways out of that conversation and went and found some other people that I vaguely knew and had a good night. But that question has stayed with me. What do you do with that passage from Paul? Well, we've just had six weeks on Paul, on the letter in which this passage appears. And we as a church are once again in the throes of discussing these issues and how we might stay together. And I thought, well, this is my chance to talk about what I would do with that passage from Paul. So, this is what I would say if I was in that conversation today. And the first thing I would say is, I'm not sure I agree with Paul, which may shock some people, but I think we're allowed to say that because, well, Paul was a person like you and I, and he wrote this letter to a particular group of people at a particular point in time for a particular purpose. And lots of people disagreed with Paul. We know that. That's why he wrote his letters. And some of those that disagreed with Paul, well, they're pretty important people. Peter, who we heard about today, he disagreed with Paul. We know that. Paul talks about it. James disagreed with Paul, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So I think it's okay to disagree with Paul. The second thing I'd say is, oh, well, some people would then object and say, but, you know, this is Scripture. Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What he says is true. Yeah, that's, that is true. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean he got it right all the time. And actually, we're inspired by the Holy Spirit as well when we read it. And we have to take that seriously. So it's okay to say, I'm not sure I agree with you, Paul. But actually, Paul also took a particular method to reading scripture that gives us permission to disagree with them. So over the last few weeks, I've talked about how Paul wrestled with his scripture, the Torah, and he really wrestled with it. Last week, I talked about in the rabbinic tradition, Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, was described as a 70-sided jewel. And to fully appreciate and understand that jewel, it was important to look at it from all 70 sides. 
So in the rabbinic tradition, that is the tradition of the rabbis, of Paul time through to today, they would have discussions as a community and read Torah and discuss it, not to come up with the right answer, as we so often do in our discussions, but to have a greater appreciation for the beauty and the depth of Torah, to fully appreciate all that it offered them in their lives with God. And Paul does that. He really gets in there and looks at the 70 sides, and he wrestles with it, and he comes up with some quite, quite surprising conclusions. I mean, he comes up with this conclusion that you can be followers of the one true God and not be an Israelite. Which doesn't sound that radical to us because we're not Israelites and we're followers of the one true God. But in Paul's time, that would have been really controversial. It's like saying you could be a follower of the one true God and not a Christian. He goes on and says... You don't even have to follow Torah. Just kind of like saying you don't really have to read the Bible. You can be a follower of the one true God, not a Jew, not an Israelite, not follow Torah. Those are pretty surprising and radical conclusions that he gets to when he wrestles with his scriptures, which are also our Old Testament. So he gives us a model of what it looks like when we wrestle with our scriptures. Not just taking them at face value, but actually saying, what is going on here? What can we learn from what these passages are saying? And how do we apply them to this new situation that we are in? So what does it mean to wrestle with Paul? Well, I think it can be summed up in one sentence. We have to put it back. We have to put what he says back into the social context out of which he was writing and we have to put the verses back into the letter in which they belong so let's first of all look at the world in which Paul lived in which is a very different world from ours a long time ago when I had hair and it was brown and not grey I went to university and I did for a while classical studies I roamed around the the various subjects and I really enjoyed classical studies and actually would have quite liked to have done a degree in it but there weren't a lot of jobs for teachers in classical studies so I went off and did science instead. And one of the things I remember was our lectures about marriage in the Greek world which is very different from marriage in our world. So in our world you get married to somebody else and the expectation is that you will stay faithful to that person that you were married to. In the Greek world, there was no such expectation. So within the Greek world, men and women got married and they would have sex so that they could procreate, have children. End of story. It was seen to be rude for men to then bug their wives for sex for any other purpose. I mean, that was just not the done thing. It was unacceptable. So what did men do? Did they remain chaste the rest of the time? Ugh, what world would that happen? So, no, that is not what happened. They then went outside of their marriage and often would strike up relationships with other men. Other women as well, but men was 
common, socially acceptable. It was what happened. It was the expected thing. You did not have sex with your wife for fun. That's a ridiculous notion. You would look outside of your marriage for that kind of activity. And that was the world that Paul lived in. In the Roman world, it was kind of similar, but there was also this darker side to that, where people who owned servants' slaves could also expect those servants and slaves to be sex toys, in a sense. And so that was the world in which they lived. And that is what we would describe today as sexual exploitation, sexual assault, rape. That was what was going on in those situations. So the question that we then have to ask is, is Paul in this passage in Romans talking about the same thing that we're talking about? And the answer is no. He is not talking about the same thing that we're talking about. He is talking about something entirely different. That doesn't mean that he has nothing to say to what we're talking about. But what he is describing in this passage from Romans is not the same thing that we are talking about. Alright, so that's the first put it back. The second put it back is the letter itself. And uh, when we read a passage like this, it is important, like when we read a book, we read all the sentences in order and the sentences take their meaning from what comes before it and the meaning is further expanded by what comes after it. We don't often just take a passage out to two sentences and say, this is what this person means. Occasionally when you're trying to write an essay you might do that as, as an example, but you're still trying to keep the context uh, from what it comes out of. So, we have to do this with these verses as well. We have to put them back into Paul's letter. And when we do that, we have to remember that Paul is writing to the church as in Rome. One of those churches was a Jewish Torah-following church, and they thought they were the pretty cool guys. They were the Jews who had recognised the Messiah, and they responded to that by faithfully keeping Torah. And then there were the non-Torah-following Christians who uh, were mostly Gentiles and could see no reason on the world why they would want to follow Torah. But they too thought that they were pretty cool because they, Gentiles, had recognised the Jewish Messiah, which had ramifications for all people, and they were following that Messiah in the way that they thought was appropriate. So both of these churches were at loggerheads, as you can imagine. Well, we can imagine because we're the same things kind of happening for us today. And what Paul is trying to do then is to offer a way for these two groups to see what the Christ message is all about that allows both of them to sit within that framework. And that is summarised in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. So just before the verses we are looking at, where Paul talks about how the faithfulness of God to the covenant is fulfilled in the faithfulness of Jesus in his death. And so because of that, the covenant is fulfilled, humanity is restored, creation is renewed, the revolution has begun, now live it. Essentially, that's what his letter to Romans says, except he takes a lot longer to say it. So, 
In the first few chapters, which comes straight after this little conclusion, he then sets out the problem. So our verses that we quote are within this first bit where he is setting out the problem. And he starts with, in a very Jewish way, the fact that the problem was idolatry. Adam and Eve introduced idolatry, the worship of false gods. Now, Paul and the Romans lived in a world filled with idols, and one particular idol, the idol of the Roman emperor. All across Rome were statues of the emperor, and people were to worship the emperor using those statues. They were a reminder of who was in charge. As an aside, it's really surprising how many of the titles that were used in the worship to the emperor, Paul and the writer of Revelations then colonize and apply to Jesus, which was a very subversive act, saying, actually, the emperor isn't really in charge, God is. All those lovely titles like Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Worthy is your name to be praised. That's all imperial titles there, applied to the emperor, taken by the Christians and applied to Jesus. No wonder they kept getting into trouble. So, these statues were there to remind people who was in charge and to remind them to worship the emperor as a god. So, in Genesis, where are the statues to the creator god? Any answers? Where are the statues? Any idea? Where are the images to remind us to worship the true God? Okay. We are. Humanity was created in the image of God. We were to be those statues. And so what Paul was saying is we forgot who we are, Adam and Eve forgot, and instead started to worship likenesses of ourselves Idols, And because of that, bad things happen. And the warning of those bad things is verses 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The problem is idolatry. And then he goes on to say, for this reason God gave them up to degrading passions, which is the verses. So the verses come straight out of the problem is idolatry. And then we stop, because we think Paul has finished. In verse 27 of chapter 1 of his letter to the Romans. But no, it was like a state knife ad, there was more. And he carries on, and he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I don't like the foolish one in there. I think I might be included. 
They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. These are the real problems. This is the point Paul is making. Not the other verses. This is the point. So what is Paul doing here? He is setting a trap. He knows that the Torah-following Christians keep looking at those non-Torah-following Christians and everyone else and go, look at those immoral, bad people. They are idolatrous. They are not following Torah. And all these bad things are happening because of them. They're weak. They're lax. They're immoral. It's kind of like some of the ways that evangelical Christians talk about us slightly more liberal Christians on occasions. Exactly the same terminology. And suddenly they're quite surprised, these Torah-following Christians in Rome, because they kind of read this and they go, wow, Paul is agreeing with us. This is amazing. This is great stuff. In fact, all Paul is doing is quoting some pretty standard Jewish understanding of the world. There is even a discussion about whether these are really Paul's thoughts or whether he is just setting a trap. But that's an aside. The non-Torah following Christians are going, what? What is Paul doing? He seems to be backing the other guys. And then he goes on and says, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others for impassing judgment, when on passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, like the judge, are doing the very same things. So what is Paul doing with those verses? He is not condemning homosexuals. He is, in fact, condemning every single one of us. He is saying, we are really good at pointing the finger at one another and going, you are immoral, you are not worthy, you are a bad person. And when we do that, we judge ourselves. Paul isn't condemning one group of people. He is condemning all of us. He is describing the problem with humanity and including all of humanity within that. Why is he doing that? So that he can fully describe the wonder of what God has done in God's faithfulness to the covenant and Jesus' faithfulness to God now that the covenant is fulfilled. He is describing the problem. The problem is we keep falling into his trap. Every time you hear that verse being quoted, know that those people just like us, are falling exactly into the trap that Paul has set. So what would I say today if I were at that wedding? Well, I would say, I don't know. Do I agree with Paul? Maybe not. Let's have a, let's have a look at that. And then I would go on to say, well, I don't think that what Paul was describing in those verses is anywhere near what is we're talking about today. I think they are very different things. Paul was just talking about a social norm where men went outside of their marriages and had relationships with other men. That is not what we're talking about here today. 
In fact, I would say, more than anything, what Paul is arguing for is saying that when we go outside of our marriage, that's a bad thing. That his, his commitment is to faithful, monogamous relationships. And so I am on public record in newspapers and saying, I think Paul would say today, gay, LGBTI people, if you want to be in relationships, it needs to be faithful, long-term, monogamous. That's the expectation. The second thing I would say is that when we use this passage from Romans, we need to be very, very careful because this passage was part of a trap. A trap set for people who love to point the fingers at other people and look and say, look, look at those immoral people over there. And Paul's trap was to say, actually, that applies to all of us. We're all included. And the minute we point our finger, we fall in Paul's trap. So be very careful how you use that verse. And I would say, as Paul says, instead... We need to look at God's faithfulness, not point the finger at each other and say how bad we are, but actually say, look at what God has done and is doing in fulfilling the covenant. That God has renewed creation, that God has restored humanity. And what does that look like? Well, the the verses we heard today, which are part of that big long section, the end of Paul, is all about what that looks like, which includes our verse. Right there in the window. Romans 12, chapter 20. <coughs> if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty or she is thirsty, give them drink. The verse that shapes the mission of this place, the kōpapa of this place. Well, that's the end of our series on Paul and his letter to the Romans. And most of you will be a little bit relieved. Some of you will be sad, but most of you will be relieved. I hope uh, that it's given you an insight into who Paul is and what he offers us in this letter. That it's big, it's complicated, but it actually has a big picture. And I hope this last sermon has helped you see how we can actually use that. And not just take verses out and read them on their own and point fingers at people, but actually put them back into their social context and into the context of those letters and actually hear what Paul has to say to us. One of our temptations with Paul is to ignore him. To think, ah, what does he have to say? He's so conservative, which he's not. And he's such a relic of the past, which he might be. When I was doing my Masters in Ministry, one of our lecturers said, whatever we think of the Bible, the Bible is our book. It shapes who we are as the people of God. We cannot just ignore it. We have to wrestle with it. We don't have the option of ignoring it and saying, ah, Paul, who needs to worry about him? Tempting as that might be on occasions. But actually, I think when we wrestle with him and actually see him for the radical that he was, then he offers a lot to us as a church. Unfortunately, I don't think we're anywhere near ready to hear what he has to say. And we will just keep on pointing the finger at each other and saying, look at those immoral people over there. Such is the sadness. Well, let us stand and say a creed, which 